Good morning and welcome to the program on this Tuesday, February 9. Great to have your company, Marcus Paul in the morning. Our telephone number if you'd like to be a part of the news and the views this morning, 131269. That's 131269. Emails mp in the morning at 2 And if you'd like to send a text to us, 0458 049 209. That's 0458 049 209. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's Tuesday, February the 9th. Okay, eight minutes after five. Great to have you company. Marcus Paul in the morning. And let's start off with some news that was always going to be pretty obvious, in my opinion. The removal of warning signs for New South Wales speed cameras has caused revenue to skyrocket with a record high of $2.5 million in December. No kidding. I think that was always going to be the case, wasn't it? 13, 12, 69 to have you say on that. Now, a very busy program on the way this morning. Uh, just after 6.30, the first of our uh, guests will be Paul Scully. Uh, he's the member for Wollongong. Now, I want to talk to Paul about this Independent Planning Commission uh, rejection of the expansion of a coal mine near Wollongong. Now, it's not the coal that we export overseas uh, that generates power. It's coking coal, so we need to be very clear on this. But I'll talk to Paul about it. Um, will it cost jobs down in the Illawarra? Uh, probably. We'll talk to Paul about it just after 6.30. If you'd like to have your say, maybe you're a local who does listen to us down in that neck of the woods. I mean, it's it's quite bizarre. It's quite bizarre. Uh, it's a gorgeous area down there where the Illawarra Coke Company operate. Um, it's just around Coalcliff, Coalcliff, and it's just a beautiful area. It's near the Seacliff Bridge, just north of places like Austinmere and Thoreau, where, you know, it'll cost you a couple of million bucks to buy a seaside pad. Gorgeous, unspoiled areas of the south coast, and only 20-odd minutes from the heart of Wollongong. Um, I don't know. And to be honest, you really, unless you, until you drive past the gates to the Illawarra Coke Company, you really don't realise that mining goes on around that area. So that's on the way. After 7 o'clock this morning, Andrew Lee will be on the program. Furniture retailer Nick Scarley has bowed to political pressure and agreed to pay back the $3.6 million the company received in JobKeeper for the first half of the new financial year with the retailer saying it benefited from a boost in consumer confidence brought on by the scheme. Look, it's taken a a little bit of work by Andrew to get this done, but he's the man. Absolutely he is. He's done brilliantly in this area uh, of trying to ensure that companies that have made profit during the pandemic and received government taxpayer money are able to pay it back. And I've lost count now the amount of money that Andrew Lee has retrieved, if you like, for the Australian taxpayer. He's done some brilliant work in this area. Anyway, Andrew on the program just after 7 o'clock. Now, after 7.30, 
Murray River communities are crying tears of despair with the latest revelations from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Lloyd Polkinghorn says an MDBA report blaming environmental damage in a fragile stretch of the river on century-old gold mining is incomprehensible. Communities have expressed increasing concern at the damage to riverbanks and their environs from increased flows under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. While the plan is supposed to protect the environment, in many cases it is having the exact opposite effects, as local residents continue to point out. Are the bureaucrats listening? Apparently not. Apparently not. Anyway, we'll speak to Lloyd on the program just after 7.30 this morning. After 8 o'clock, Senator Pauline Hanson, uh, she's calling on the Coalition and Labor to join with One Nation in enacting legislation to ban the display and use of Nazi and ISIS symbols. Okay. By the way, that major operation down off La Perouse in Sydney, searching for, well... What we thought, what we were told was possibly a, a baby's body has failed to, to show anything. That was that early story we brought for you yesterday morning. OK, also on the program after 8 o'clock today, Trevor Long will join us uh, with the latest. We missed out on Trevor last week. He was a little busy with the kids. Uh, but he's on the program. An Apple Watch announced two years ago, but not available in Australia, has gotten closer to launching. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, TikTok on your TV. Yep, that's a thing. Move over, YouTube. The ultimate time waster is here. Well, yeah, probably right. It is a bit of a time waste, isn't it? Uh, And also this morning with Trevor in the latest uh, tech news, sports rights, the new frontier, netball, all in with Foxtel. Some of it will be free. Is this a way to get around having free-to-air television stations getting sport? Well, God, I hope not. I really hope not, and I'll tell Trevor why later, because, sorry, um, free-to-air television plays a very important role in broadcasting sport. Ask Cricket Australia how they're going. No one would have a clue. Well, very few people would have a clue who won the one-day series. Cricket's. Recently, because unless you subscribe to Foxtel... And you couldn't see it. It's ridiculous. Anyway, 13, 12, 69 might work for netball. I guess that's a bit of a fringe sport. I know it's very popular, don't get me wrong. But when it comes to, you know, the big ones, it's still a fringe sport so far as television's concerned. But, I mean, yes, it has a great place on TV. I don't know. Uh, why wouldn't free-to-air television? My, I, don't, no, hang on, Channel 9... I think it's Channel 9. They broadcast the netball series, don't they? Very popular. I think they throw it on at about midday on a Saturday or something, but it's still very popular. Okay, 13, 12, 69, if you would like to have you say. Today for Sydney, partly cloudy, medium chance of a shower or two, less likely this afternoon, tops of 24 degrees. Uh, for the station sticking with us after 6 o'clock, the Central Tablelands 2EL. Good morning to you. Partly cloudy today, the medium chance of showers just east of the ranges, most likely this morning and this afternoon, and again, tops of 22 degrees. And for the mid-north coast, good morning to our listeners that stick with us through till 9 o'clock up there in Coffs Harbour and Port Macquarie. Uh, For the mid-north coast today, the medium chance again of showers and tops of around 25 degrees for Coffs and Port Macquarie.
Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's Star Witness in the box today, and that is the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro. John, at least, uh, has the kahunas to show up. The Premier, not at all. David Shoebridge joins us on the program. The Blue Mountains, on the government's own analysis, suffered more than $65 million in economic loss. The Central Coast suffered more than $150 million in economic loss. Ballina on the North Coast, that community suffered more than $85 million in economic loss. Collectively, they, those three areas suffered more than $315 million of economic loss. And guess how much money they received, Marcus? Uh, zero? <laughs> yeah, not one red cent. Not, not, a, not a dollar. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, great to have you, company. It is Tuesday, February the 9th. How about to give me a call, 13 12 69, if you'd like to have you say. Emails, MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. Boulevard, another point of view. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69, Payne Haas. The Brisbane Broncos grub, who thinks it's okay to abuse police officers, male and female has copped a $50,000 fine from the National Rugby League. Is that enough? Appropriate? I don't know. Do you get a suspension as well? I'll have to have a look into that. I'm not quite sure whether he got suspended. Uh, they're not going to sit him down, are they? Well, perhaps they should. Uh, anyway, if you want to have your say on Payne Haas this morning, $50,000 fine. He's on a two-year good behaviour bond for his alleged... Well, it's not really alleged. For his behaviour toward police. Medical staff I see at Orange Health Service have told a parliamentary inquiry that, quote, serious adverse outcomes for patients are at risk of not being properly investigated. The OHS Medical Staff Council made the claim in a submission to the New South Wales government's current inquiry into regional hospitals. Dr Ruth Arnold, who's a senior clinician at uh, OHS and co-chair of the New South Wales Medical Staff Executive Council said that when something goes wrong with the treatment of a patient at a New South Wales hospital, such as being given the wrong medication, doctors or nurses must file a report which they grade the extent to which their error impacted the patient. These gradings were known as the Severity Assessment Code. According to New South Wales Health, serious incidents were rated SAC1 or SAC2, uh, SAC3 and SAC4 incidents were those resulting in little or no harm. Really? <laughs> Didn't know they had those kinds of rating systems in our hospitals. Look, accidents happen and mistakes can happen. We're all human. Um, but anyway, medical staff at Orange Health Service have told the parliamentary inquiry that serious adverse outcomes for patients are at risk of not being properly investigated. 
If you're from the Central West, let me know your experiences at, uh, within the Orange Health Service, the base hospitals, even in Bathurst. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say this morning. Well, as always, there's a day for everything, isn't there, Scruff? Today is Safer Internet Day. We're going to have a Scruff Day? We should set up a... Yeah? We'll do that for you, mate. New research released for Safer Internet Day today, Tuesday, Feb 9, is providing a clearer picture of the online activities of Australian teens... It found they're spending around two hours per day online outside of school and have four different social media services with platforms like TikTok apparently gaining in popularity. Are we going to set up a TikTok account? No, no. I'll TikTok you in a minute. Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Star witness in the box today, and that is the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro. John, at least, uh, has the kahunas to show up. The Premier, not at all. David Shoebridge joins us on the program. The Blue Mountains, on the government's own analysis, suffered more than $65 million in economic loss. The Central Coast suffered more than $150 million in economic loss. Ballina on the North Coast, that community suffered more than $85 million in economic loss. Collectively, they, those three areas suffered more than $315 million of economic loss. And guess how much money they received, Marcus? Uh, zero? <laughs> yeah, not one red cent. Not, not, a, not a dollar. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Twenty-four minutes away from six. I just mentioned before we went to the news with Michaela that today was Safer Internet Day, and new research for today, Safer Internet Day, is providing a clearer picture of the online activities of Australian teenagers. Now, it found they're spending around two hours per day online outside of school and have not one but two but three but four different social media services. Platforms like TikTok are gaining in popularity, but of course there's the old chestnut of Facebook, Instagram, they're all there. E-Safety Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant says they're also likely to have had a negative experience when they've been online. Maybe we need to try and speak to Julie in the coming days, Justin. I know we're very busy today, but the reason I bring it up again is... uh, This story, we've received the information from New South Wales Police this morning here at the program. A bloke will front court after being charged over the alleged online procurement of a young girl for sex. Late last week, officers from Liverpool, that's in Sydney's west, started investigating following reports a man had met up with a teenage girl he'd met online for the purposes of, well, sexual activity. Police were told the pair met through social media and began speaking on the phone before the man engaged in sexually explicit conversations and requested photos of the girl, knowing she was aged under 16. It's alleged the man met with the girl in Sydney South West last Monday, 
and attempted to sexually touch her before she left the area. So the girl subsequently reported the incident at school. Now, following inquiries, a 23-year-old man from Claymore near Campbelltown was arrested yesterday. He was taken to Campbelltown Police Station and slapped with a number of charges. He's been refused bail. He'll be at Campbelltown Local Court today. So again, police are urging parents and guardians to speak with their kids about staying safe online. Safe internet use. The tips for parents, they're very important. We'll probably, uh, I might share them on our Facebook page this morning. Be aware of how much time your child spends on the internet. Spend time talking with your child about the dangers associated with online conversations, particularly when communicating with someone that they've only ever met online. Spend time exploring the internet with your kids and let them teach you about their favourite websites and applications. Keep computers or internet-enabled devices in a room the whole family can access. Not in your child's bedroom. Monitor internet access on those devices. Consider installing filtering and or computer blocking software provided by your internet service provider. Ensure you're able to access your child's email and social media accounts and randomly check the contents. Check your phone bill for unusual outgoing calls and consider using caller ID to identify incoming calls. Inquire with your child's school, public library and places they frequent to find out what internet safety measures they have in place. All right, today is Safer Internet Day. And in light of the story we just mentioned about this 23-year-old allegedly grooming a child under 16... It couldn't come quick enough. What about for kids? Well, here are the tips from New South Wales Police that they've sent us this morning. Now, for kids, please do not send a picture of yourself to anyone. You don't know and never place a full profile and picture anywhere on the internet. Never give out your personal information, including your name, your home address, phone number or school over the internet. Never arrange a face-to-face meeting with someone that you've only ever chatted to on the internet. Tell your parents or other adult you know of any contact that makes you feel uncomfortable. Also, think carefully before uploading or sending images or videos to people over the internet. Once you press send, it's definite and final. You can't get it back or take it down. Look, there's a really good website, the information on youth issues, including online safety. That's available on the New South Wales Police website. And again, I'll share all of those links this morning on Marcus Paul in the morning. Just follow us on social media. Uh, Look, the content there, all about news and people's views. Occasionally, the language gets a little blue. But apart from that, it's quite a safe space. 13 12 69, the telephone number. All right, welcome back to the program, 131269, the telephone number, if you would like to have you say. Now, I see there's a bit of a, a brouhaha blowing in from down south. Uh, Gareth Ward, I put in a, a message to Gareth. I know he quite often listens to the program. If you're listening to us this morning, Gareth, we'd love to speak to you about this. The Albion Park uh, Rail Bypass, something that's been long, long sought for the people of the Illawarra and South Coast, 
it's being built. But there's a bit of a blue going on between, apparently, the Labor MPs down there. Maybe when we talk to Paul Scully a little later about uh, the Illawarra Co. Company and coal mining in the Illawarra, we'll touch base on this as well. But um, am I right? I think they voted against the transformation of the Illawarra, uh, Illawarra Bypass down there at Albion Park or the Albion Park Rail Bypass. It's a big bottleneck that you get stuck in when maybe you're travelling down the south coast. It's the uh, missing area that still has traffic banked up past the Illawarra Airport. Anyway, it's being built, but there's a blue going on between Labor MPs, apparently. Uh, They voted against it, and now they're complaining about something to do with it. I'll get some more detail on it, but if you're from that neck of the woods, give us a call, 13 12 69... Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. The NRL's chief gender advisor has called for cultural understanding and not a suspension for young Brisbane Broncos test prop Payne Haas. Why are you looking at me like that? Because you're a woman, you think I won't touch you. To a female police officer, the bloke is a grub, Catherine. I'm sorry, what if it was you that all of these these awful comments were directed at? They may respond different to police authority than someone from an Anglo background. What a load of tripe. Stop making excuses for these scrubs and rub this bloke out of the game. Marcus, Paul in the morning. I didn't have a mobile phone at school. I'm a dinosaur. We didn't bother with any of that technology. We didn't, it wasn't available. We did silly things like talk to each other around recess and throw the football around. We'll try and chat up girls. Unscripted, genuine, and sometimes silly. Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, one here from Dante. Good morning to you, Dante. I appreciate hearing from you all the time, mate. Marcus, how would this footballer Payne Haas like it if someone hit his mother or father or ran onto the field and hit him with a three-by-two while he was working? These are our police, and they must be protected and respected while they're working, more importantly, the officers are mums and dads, just like his parents. Would he like to see them assaulted? Uh, well, yes, that's a very good point. Look, just back to this Payne Haas story. He has been banned for three games and copped a $50,000 fine after the police imitation, uh, intimidation rather, incident. So a cop a three-game ban and $50,000 fine. It's around about a tenth of his income. It's almost like a slap on the wrist, really, isn't it? I think it is. Uh, While we're on sport, Novak Djokovic and uh, Nick Kyrgios continue with their war of words, (laughs) spicing it up for the tournament that really shouldn't be going ahead anyway, to be honest, the Australian Open. Uh, But anyway, uh, Kyrgios and... Uh, Djokovic are back uh, again playing today. Both have made the second round after winning their first games. I can't wait to see if these two blokes come up against each other. Maybe instead of playing football, they can have a debate. Hey, Playing football, you idiot. Maybe instead of playing tennis, they can have a debate. Hey, Or they can play the game and then, I don't know, one can say one side of the net, the other on the other side of the net, and they can hurl abuse at each other. It's become a sideshow in itself, hasn't it? Um, look, both of them are 
extremely talented tennis players. Djokovic is another level on Kyrgios. Uh, but Kyrgios was very ripe when he pointed out earlier, uh, I think late last year, that Djokovic, who uh, you know was at the heart of a COVID-19 outbreak overseas because he was partying and had a party where people got infected, etc., rather than social distancing and doing the right thing. So Kyrgios was right to call him out on that. But I think Nick, I don't know, maybe Nick just needs to focus on his game if he wants to win the Australian Open. Uh, because he may get caught up in, you know, uh, all the distraction of his blue with Djokovic, who's probably a, a much better player at this point in time. All right, I'm going to have a lot to say after six o'clock. I hope that tape's rolling, Scruff, on Pork Barilaro. Not my words. Front page of Sydney Morning Herald today. Pork Barilaro defends the state's handling of the bushfire relief cash. Boy, oh boy. Deputy Premier John Barilaro says a minimum spending requirement of $1 million determined which councils received cash from a $177 million bushfire relief fund last year, despite almost half of all projects funded falling under that amount. Does this bloke make things up as he goes? I mean, I'm sure he was briefed ahead of this grilling yesterday by David Shoebridge. David, who was on the program yesterday morning, we knew what was coming. Mr Barilaro yesterday told a parliamentary inquiry that the Blue Mountains, the country's 12th worst bushfire-affected local government area, missed out on funding because its projects fell outside criteria of the fast-tracked fund. Wow. It was the first time committee members and council mayors said they'd heard of any such criteria. We know uh, that the relief fund, all of this taxpayer money, $177 million worth, was spent mostly in coalition-held seats. I wonder whether they knew about the criteria, bros. I'm sure they bloody well did. When asked about the discrepancy, a spokesman for the Deputy Premier told the Herald last night 50 of more than 70 grants fell under a, quote, sector development scheme that did not have a minimum $1 million requirement and that the Blue Mountains failed to apply under that category. As I say, plenty to say about that. New Sport and Weather next at 6 o'clock. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Podcast Marcus Paul in the morning at any time. Go to 2sm.com.au and click the show page. All right, welcome back to the program. 131269 is my telephone number. It's just gone five minutes past six. New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro has revealed an embarrassing nickname he earned for handling public funds in a way critics have panned as quote-unquote pork barrelling. He's upset that people are calling him, and it's on the front page of today's Sydney Morning Herald. He might not want to grab a copy of that. Pork Barilaro. He's defended the state's handling of bushfire relief cash. We've been talking about this at length, as you know, in the last week or so. And yesterday, after our chat with David Shoebridge, Mr Barilaro fronted David in front of a parliamentary inquiry looking into the New South Wales government's handling of a pair of controversial grant programs that steered millions in public dollars toward coalition-held districts and left almost nothing to the rest of the state. The New South Wales Nationals leader repeatedly sparred 
with crossbench and opposition MPs during the hearing and appeared to echo Premier Gladys Berejiklian's position that pork barrelling is politics as usual. This is what Braz had to say yesterday. When you think about it, every single election and every party goes to, we make commitments. We want to call that pork, you want to call that pork barrelling, you want to call that buying votes. It's what the elections are for. Hmm. All right. Well, someone who won't be happy at all about this is the Mayor of the Blue Mountains, Mark Greenhill. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Um, you would have been obviously watching with great interest the goings on yesterday during I was this. Present. Yeah, well, yes, you were I there. Was present. Okay. Yes. What did you make of John Barillaro's comments? Well, it, uh, it, things have just got to be done better than that. That's uh, that's not acceptable. Um, he talked about uh, reasons for why the Blue Mountains, uh, you know, surrounded by fire on three sides uh, during the Black Summer, received no funding and referred to criteria we were never told about. Um, you know, his government approached us by phone, asked us uh, if we would uh, you know, have uh, shovel-ready projects uh, for funding should it become available. We said absolutely. We submitted a prospectus. We didn't get funded. Yesterday I hear about criteria as the reason for us not getting funded. What was criteria we never knew about? And then all the follow-up calls to the government about how our applications are going we were never told such criteria existed. That was news to us. So it's almost like, Mark, uh, the Deputy Premier moved the goalposts, which meant that you weren't able to get this funding. And all the while... I mean, I have to wonder, I really have to wonder, whether the other jurisdictions that received this public money were aware of this criteria. I mean, did they fall under the criteria? Obviously, according to Barillaro, they did. So why is it they are providing uh, LNP-held seats with the correct criteria and not others? Well, I don't know if uh, if they received uh, any criteria or not. It's interesting if the criteria uh, ruled us out, why did they ring us and approach us and ask us to apply? And why, during all the follow-up conversations, did this criteria never get mentioned? We were surrounded on three sides by fire. Yep. Homes were lost in our community. 70% of our World Heritage Area destroyed. Our tourism economy brought to its knees. We put in 24 grant applications for $5.4 million and received not one cent. It's hard to understand. But hang on. The, the story today that I'm reading says the Deputy Premier John Barillaro says a minimum spend requirement of $1 million determined which councils received cash from this $177 million bushfire relief fund last year. And you're telling me you put in an application for at least $5 million worth. $5.4 million uh, and that... Uh $1 million threshold, again, was never mentioned to us. But certainly, certainly the cumulative total of our 24 grants was $5.4 million. And they were shovel-ready, is that right? Those projects were shovel-ready. I sat there in the Parliament yesterday yeah. and uh, heard him say that uh, you know the pro- our projects weren't shovel-ready. Just wrong. Meanwhile, I'm texting our operational staff back at Council, and they're saying that they are all shovel-ready. And again... No one from the government ever said to us or asked us, uh, is there any issue with these projects being shovel-ready? They were. 
I, I just don't understand. I mean, 34 of the grants fell under $1 million that were awarded, including $131,000 to an oyster farm in Kempsey, $194,000 to St Ives Honey Wine Producer, and $43,000 to a cellar door in the Snowy Mountains. It uh, makes a mockery of this so-called $1 million threshold, doesn't it? And yet we've put in a, you know, a total of $5.4 million worth of grants. It just, it just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. You're absolutely right. I mean, two of three grants issued under Labor-held seats fell under $600,000. That's four hundred k less than the $1 million that the Deputy Premier said was the criteria yesterday. It's just amazing. Now, we're hopeful that we'll uh, get some funding in the second round. I think after the fuss that's been made about the Blue Mountains, it'll be hard to justify not getting funding. But, you know, that'll be 18 months after the fires went through the Blue Mountains. Businesses have gone to the wall since then. So while we'll do a lot with any funding we get, it's cold comfort for those who've already gone under. It's just not right. All right, good to have you on, Mark. Was there anything else you wanted to add, mate? Go ahead. I'd just add one thing. Please. Bushfires don't discriminate on the basis of how people vote, and nor should we. Well said. All right, Mark, thank you for your time. We'll talk again on this soon, I'm sure. Cheers. Thanks very much. My pleasure, mate. There he is, Mark Greenhill, Mayor of the Blue Mountains, and he sounds a little annoyed, and why wouldn't he be? (laughs) Why wouldn't he be? The New South Wales Deputy Premier has another name for the waves of cash being handed out to predominantly coalition-held seats. Investment. First comes the scandal, then comes the spin. John Barillaro was in Parliament yesterday morning defending his government's handling of a $177 million bushfire relief fund. The government, as we know, was accused of using the Bushfire Local Economy Recovery Fund to pork barrel its regional electorates. That includes handling, handing $10 million to a multinational company controlled by one of the coalition's biggest donors, Anthony Pratt. What the hell does Anthony Pratt need an extra $10 million for? The bloke's a multimillionaire, probably a billionaire. Isn't he one of the, one of the most wealthy men in this country? Anyway, John Barillaro has another name for the waves of cash being handed out. It's called investment. He told the inquiry yesterday that he was sick to death of the mistruth that is spun in relation to to this term, pork barrelling. What we call pork barrelling is investment. Can you believe this bloke? He said, I dare you to turn up to these communities and tell them they don't deserve these projects. John, nobody's saying they don't deserve the projects. What people are calling for, is it too hard for you to understand? Are you that crook? Are you that corrupt that you don't understand what people are calling for? They want an even, fair distribution of funds. Nobody's saying that LNP seats shouldn't receive some public funding. Of course they should, but it needs to be fair. It needs to be equitable. You can't keep shoveling it into your own electorates to fill the back pockets of donors and also to shore up votes of your own mob. That's not how New South Wales taxpayers want their money spent. It's pork barrelling. It's not investment. It's bloody corrupt behaviour is what it is. 
Greens MP David Shoebridge and various Labor MPs have accused the government of politicising the fund. What is this rubbish now? What is it? The politics of envy. No, it's corruption. Stop with all the BS spin from the Prime Minister down whenever there's an issue uh, relating to the inappropriate spending of public money or something they don't like hearing any criticism. Oh, it's the politics of envy. What a load of complete bullshit. According to one analysis, just $2.5 million out of the $177 million in first-round funding went to Labor-held seats with the rest flowing to coalition seats and the tightly held independent seat of Wagga Wagga. Last time I checked, Wagga wasn't anywhere near near as affected by bushfires as the Blue Mountains was. No money was allocated to projects in the Labor-held seat of the Blue Mountains, which was the site of one of last year's worst bushfires. It suffered an economic loss of $65 million, according to the government's own estimates. And how much money did they get, John? Nothing. We've heard from Mark Greenhill this morning, the mayor of the Blue Mountains. He said, basically, you moved the goalposts on them while you were allocating the money. And even that doesn't stack up. Because what you said yesterday is in stark contrast to where the money went. You said, oh, projects... Under $1 million weren't considered. Again, that's a lie. It's an outright lie, Deputy Premier. Mr Barillaro said there was no conflict in the fact that the government handed $10 million to Vizzy, that's Richard Pratt's mob, despite the company's owner Pratt, giving the government $1.5 million in political donations last financial year. Legal donations, regardless of where they go, are legal. Says, bros, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. <clears throat> what do New South Wales taxpayers, John, get from Richard Pratt? Because this sounds to me like an $8.5 million gift. He said the government had reached out to Vizzy and other businesses that had been lobbying the government to alert them to the funding round which prioritised shovel-ready projects. Well, if Richard Pratt has shovel-ready projects good to go, John, let him bloody pay for them. Not New South Wales taxpayers. New South Wales taxpayer money should go to areas like the Blue Mountains... While your government is, you know, subtly moving around bushfire fighting equipment from areas inside that local government area out to places like Richmond, Windsor, elsewhere, leaving them short on resources. Anyway, Mr Barillaro went on saying the government had reached out to visit and other businesses, etc., to alert them to the funding round which prioritised shovel-ready projects. Since being Minister of Forestry, I've never had a conversation with Mr Pratt, said Mr Barillaro. He said recipients of the bushfire funding have been identified by the National Bushfire Recovery Agency and signed off on by the federal government as well as other state governments. You passing the buck here, John. Actually, didn't he say, basically, yesterday that, well, you know... I had nothing to do with any of these. What the hell is he doing there in the inquiry if he apparently had nothing to do with any of it? And on and on it goes. I mean, it was testy, that exchange yesterday.
but I'm sorry, it just shows how utterly and totally corrupt this New South Wales government is at the moment. It really is. He was asked about the scandal surrounding the New South Wales government's handling of the $250 million Stronger Communities Grant Scheme, which we've dubbed here the Stronger Communities Fraud, in which documents were shredded by the Premier's office. He told the inquiry, shredding documents doesn't give confidence to anyone. Probably about the best thing he said all morning. We don't do that in my office, he said. Well, of course, some things are harder to spin than others. And just before I I finish up on this rant, Mr Barillaro did say recipients of the bushfire funding have been identified by the National Bushfire Recovery Agency and signed off by the federal government as well as the state government. The funding also included, and this is the real kicker, the real kick in the guts for people of the Blue Mountains and other areas that received not a cent. $11 million for a skydiving business that have been twice projected for government funding. (laughs) I'm sorry, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. 13, 12, 69, the telephone number. Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. The Labor faithful out there want to hear policy from you. What are your alternatives to what ScoMo and his mob are doing right now? We will continue to roll out policies between now and the next election so that everyone will see clearly what the suite of alternative policies that a Labor government would implement to make the recovery even stronger. We're bringing you all the news and the views. There will be discussions about what the job seeker payment per day should be. Marcus, as much as I enjoy speaking on your program, today is not the day for the announcement. They can't afford to drop it down either at the end of March to $40 a day. That will produce real hardship. We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, 23 after 6, a koala running across a busy freeway caused a six-car pile-up and lengthy traffic delays yesterday. In Adelaide, on the southeastern freeway, driver Nadia Tugwell stopped to pick up the koala, which she spotted dashing across the road. She said the crash was caused by drivers trying to avoid the koala as it scampered over the freeway. Poor little thing. I've got a picture here of the koala inside Nadia Tugwell's car. And you can see the traffic jam <laughs> that it left behind. Poor little thing. It was apparently a, a young koala. Uh, she managed to grab it and put it in the boot of a car and arrange for a rescue uh, group to meet her further down the freeway. The koala appeared to be uninjured and calm, unlike the drivers that were stuck behind all the... Uh, the mayhem behind it. Look, I don't know. I mean, if I was on a, a freeway, I would. You know, I saw a, a koala trying to dash across the road. I would stop too. I think everybody would, wouldn't they? Uh, it's just unfortunate. Wrong place, wrong time. Had it have made the dash in the middle of the night, we probably wouldn't have seen the carnage. Nobody, though, importantly, was seriously injured in this crash. But we have been told by police in South Australia, anyway that 
We shouldn't attempt to rescue a koala on a busy freeway, but to call traffic management or police, which is probably the best thing to do. 25 after 6. We're off to the newsroom in just a couple of moments. This is Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69 is our open line number. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning, Jimmy Eat World, that's called The Middle. Yeah, all right, uh, thank you for uh, the phone calls and uh, I'm getting a few emails in and a couple of texts in relation to my rant or as <laughs> an earlier caller who didn't want to come on air said, your meltdown... Well, I'm sorry. Uh, most people disagree with you. Uh, someone rang said, Marcus, why are you having such a meltdown over funding? Uh, well, because it's not being spent reasonably, fairly. And it's quite obvious that the state government of New South and I'm just sick of it. The state government of New South Wales is using taxpayer money to get itself re-elected. First of all, to get itself elected with the Stronger Communities Fund. And now, of course... While they're in power, when, you know, valuable public funding is available to help uh, bushfire-affected communities recover, what are they doing again? Funneling it into LNP areas. Don't worry about the Blue Mountains. Don't worry about other Labor-held seats or other seats held by independents, etc. Let's just look after our own mob first. Lynn Sheiky says, Marcus, I really thought that John Barillaro was an honest man who had all the people of New South Wales as his priority, not just Liberal electorates. How wrong and disappointed I am. The Liberal National Party are like a poison to the people of New South Wales at the moment. Please, people, wake up and see all the destruction and corruption they are involved in concerning our states. Well, Lynn, I couldn't have put it better myself. 131269, if you would like to have your say on that, emails, there's plenty coming through. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. If you would like to have your say on this, there'll be more to come on it, I'm sure. You're listening to Marcus Paul in the morning. And we're with you everywhere. In the car, at home and online. Download the 2SM app, available on iPhone and Android. Marcus Paul in the morning. Call 13 12 69. All right, 21 to 7. Uh, great to have your company on this Tuesday morning. It is February 9. Give us a call. 13 12 69 if you'd like to have your say. Chris is on the open line. We'll go to him in a moment. But Labor's Resources Spokesman and member for Wollongong, Paul Scully, will be on the program soon. The New South Wales Independent Planning Commission has rejected the expansion of a coal mine near Wollongong. Now, is this a good or a bad thing for the people of the North Illawarra, just south of Sydney? I'll get uh, Paul's opinion on this very soon. Andrew Lee will join us very soon as well. Uh, Furniture retailer Nick Scarley has bowed to political pressure and agreed to pay back some $3.6 million the company received in JobKeeper payments for the first half of the new financial year with the retailer saying it benefited from a boost in consumer confidence brought on by the scheme. Again, this is brilliant work done by Andrew Lee. He's led to, well, the recovery of millions upon millions of our money, your money, my money, taxpayer money, that's been retrieved from big business who've continued to do well during the economic downturn or or COVID recession. So Andrew on the program a little later this morning. All right, 20 to 7. Chris, are you there? Uh, yeah, I am, Marcus. How are you, mate? All right, Chris. Thank you. Um, look, I was watching the news last night, and Greg Hunt, 
And um, he was saying that if Australia could keep the South African variant out of the country and the UK variant, we'd be we'd be okay. And I, I just want, I don't understand. Like we all had the same strain of the virus to start with, and it's apparently mutated to something else in South Africa. It's mutated to something different again in the UK. Um, the problem is that it, that it's actually mutating. Keeping them out does not mean that it will not mutate here in Australia. Well, that's true. Although, you know, I uh, I, think... I know mm. I understand the theory. Yeah, but um, like that that's a bit of an issue. Well, it could be. Uh, let's hope it's not. I mean, we. Uh, I mean, I don't like comparing Australia to other countries around the world. No, but I'm just we've done so much virus. better. Yeah, I'm. I'm just talking about the virus itself, and and with Barillaro and that. Yeah, it was already established that pork barrelling was um, all good and well with the other two hundred and fifty million dollars that. Um, got unfairly distributed. Well, when it? you say it was already established, that's well, that's not correct. Uh, what yeah, it was, well, yes, of course. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the Premier and John Barillaro, the Deputy, and others within the New South Wales government can't find a broom big enough to sweep all of this under the carpet forever. They can't. And I finally lost it this morning over this. I mean, that call from the Blue Mountains Mayor Mark Greenhill was the final straw for me. And the excuses made by the Deputy Premier yesterday, John Barillaro. I mean, we people right across the state of New South Wales need to be heard on this issue. We need to tell our politicians from the Premier down that we're sick to death of corruption. We're sick of it. Yesterday, I aired a whole range of issues in relation to the Murray-Darling Basin. And the fact how taxpayers, that, that's more a federal issue, of course... Barnaby Joyce Drought Envoy, please spare me. We deserve better. We deserve better. Absolutely. You know, whether it's mismanagement of water, whether it's the funnelling of our money, it's not their money. John Barillaro, Gladys Berejiklian, it's not their money. Why should they decide where taxpayer dollars are going to go in relation to bushfire relief funding Um, I mean, of course, they need to uh, work with everybody to ensure that there's an adequate sharing of this money. It's not theirs. It's not theirs just to funnel into their seats to make their own constituents happy. It's not the people's faults. I mean, some people voted for you, Gladys. Some people voted for your government in the Blue Mountains. How do you think they'll feel? Anyway, we'll talk more on this very soon. Labor's resources spokesman and member for Wollongong, Paul Scully is on the program now. The New South Wales Independent Planning Commission, the IPC, has rejected the expansion of a coal mine near Wollongong because the project could cause irreversible damage to the Sydney and Illawarra drinking water catchments. Mining company South 32 had applied to extend the life of its dendrobium coal mine until 2048 for the production of coal to be used for making steel overseas and here in Australia. The company proposed extracting additional 78 million tonnes of coal from two areas near the Avon and Cordo dams, which supply water to the Macarthur, the Illawarra and Wallandilly regions and metropolitan Sydney. 
Now, the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment had recommended the Commission approve the project, arguing that its benefits, quote, significantly outweigh its residual costs and that it is in the public interest, unquote. But several submissions, including from Water New South Wales, argued the project would have unacceptable effects on the catchment, including the loss of billions of litres in surface water per year. So the decision on Friday by the Commission, saying South 32 had failed to properly quantify the risk of long-term and potentially irreversible impacts, particularly on the integrity of a vital drinking water source, it found the greenhouse gas emissions the project would cause both at the project site and once coal was sold and exported were significant. So effectively, the Commission ruled it out, saying it wasn't in the public interest. Well, let's go to the member for Wollongong on this, Paul Scully. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Marcus. It's nice to speak to you again, mate. Now, what do you make of this? South 32 have been an employer in the northern Illawarra for decades. They're obviously disappointed by this decision. Oh, look, I think uh, a lot of people in the Illawarra uh, broadly were uh, were surprised by the decision. Uh, and what I mean by surprised is not that there was a rejection, but rather uh, that uh, there was probably most people were thinking, this is both opponents of the proposal and those who supported it, uh, that the uh, the Commission would have uh, given a more positive uh, assessment of it, even if they put extensive conditions on it to make sure that uh, other things were in place. But the umpire has spoken and uh, we've now got to get on with the task of working out what the full implications of that are uh, for what is a uh, quite highly integrated uh, coal, uh, coal and steel supply chain in the Illawarra. How many people does South 32 currently employ roughly? Look, there's about uh, five or six hundred at the Dendrobium site. There would have been another a few hundred employed uh, in uh, in the uh, the next uh, work that uh, would have been involved in in the extension. South Thirty Two also operate the Appen Mine, which is uh, another uh, eight or nine hundred, I think it is, uh, in uh, in Appen. So they're they're an integrated operation there. So it's a a large employer in the region, uh, and of course. Uh, uh, they supply most of the coking coal uh, that uh, ends up at the Port Kembla Steelworks, which uh, ends up on people's roofs as Colourbond and all yep. other sort of great products that Bluescope produce. And that's the difference. It's coking coal. Uh, we need to be very um, care- specific when we talk about uh, what's extracted from the ground there. It's coking coal. What, in your mind, is the... Uh, is is that different to what's extracted elsewhere around New South Wales in particular? It is. I mean, the southern coal fields are as largely metallurgical or coking coal uh, and has always has been, but uh, as opposed to uh, uh, much of the coal in, say, the Hunter, uh, which is thermal coal, which is used for power generation. Now, we're going to need steel long into the future and uh, and while we can uh, and that's going to help with uh, you know new energy generation technologies electric vehicles a whole host of other things uh, but while uh, there may be a chance to produce uh, steel with uh, with hydrogen into the future most people's and most expert commentary including comments by the IPC and its determination says that's probably not going to be a realistic option yeah. until around 2040 because the hydrogen doesn't exist and the commercial technology doesn't exist so for the moment if we want to produce steel we've got to have coking coal to be able to produce it all right. Look, the thing is um, that this site, the Dendrobium mine site in particular, uh, it's 
Well, it's it's quite rare. Uh, the Sydney Illawarra region is the only place in the world where long-wall coal mining is permitted under the public water catchment of a major city. Look, a lot of people have been concerned by this for a while, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. And and it is a very sensitive and it's a, a, a area to, to mine in. And that's why uh, uh, it's always been incredibly highly regulated. I grew up uh, just down the road from uh, from where the Dendrobium pit entrance is and uh, my parents still live there. And uh, even even a village, a small village on the outskirts of Wollongong that uh, has its history in mining and uh, before that uh, timber getting, uh, it's, it's controversial and, uh, and divides and uh, there are mixed views about uh, that proposal and about the mine, even in that small area. So uh, it absolutely is a, a, a difficult task, and uh, we need to make sure, and, and that's why there's always been tough regulation around the Dendrobium site, uh, to make sure that uh, every possible step is made and uh, is taken to uh, to protect drinking water. So, and that's an important point of the IPC's decision here: is yeah. they didn't say that mining couldn't take place underneath the water catch land because it's not taking place underneath dams under the dendrobium proposal they didn't say it couldn't take place what they said is the mining proposal that they were given to consider was was it was not approvable so now it's up to uh, south 32 to have a look at its options uh, as to whether or not there is a an alternate mining plan that they may be able to put forward all right. Always great to talk to you, Paul. I appreciate good it, mate. Good to talk to you, Marcus. All Got right. Have a good day. Mate. See you, mate. You Bye-bye. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say. Look, while we're talking about the South Coast, uh, Gareth Ward, uh, of course, is uh, an MP down that way. He does a great job looking after social services in New South Wales under the vein of uh, the Minister for Homelessness. And, look, he's had a fair bit to say, I see, in the media in the last couple of days in relation to uh, the Albion Park Rail bypass. Apparently, uh, we've got some MPs at each other's throats down there. Uh, I just wanted to get to the bottom of this because whenever I hear things like the Albion Park Rail bypass, which... (laughs) has been long needed by the people of the Illawarra. I know that Gareth, who's a Liberal MP, has fought tooth and nail for his constituents to get this thing built. Whenever I hear that there's politicisation of it, I get a little concerned. Gareth, g'day, mate. Uh, G'day, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, good. Good, thank you. Um, What's going on with the Albion Park Rail bypass? Where are we up to at the moment and why are a couple of Labor MPs bluing over it? Well, look, firstly, uh, when this government makes a promise about infrastructure, we always get it done. And you only need to look across New South Wales to see the construction boom that, um, thank goodness, we made all of those tough decisions early on because uh, construction is a really important part of why our economy is so strong. And look, that doesn't matter whether it's in the city or in the regions. And uh, for those that are unfamiliar, the Albion Park Rail Bypass uh, is a 10-kilometre section of road that will uh, get rid of the only sets of traffic lights on the Princess Highway between Bomadary and Heathcote. It was a major choke point, as you would know, Marcus, mm. uh, being a former resident of Kiama. Yep. Uh, it, it's one of those those uh, sections of road that, in fact, was voted the most hated piece of road in New South Wales by NRMA members a few years ago. Um, so I led the campaign as a local member uh, to secure uh, a record investment for our region, $630 million. It's the largest ever 
single investment in the history of the Princess Highway. Um, and that took some time because it wasn't something that was on um, the books as being a, a priority right away, but um, we worked hard, we campaigned hard, uh, and, and we secured it. Um, look, the, the controversy you referred to, uh, one of the members of the opposition who actually voted against funding the project now wants to extend the project okay. uh, because um, the, the project um, obviously covers Albion Park. Uh, they want a section of it extended further north. Look, I've secured some, some money to look at that option only recently, but it seems this particular member of the opposition um, was probably a little bit asleep over the Christmas period and just hadn't noticed that I'd announced this money. Um, we're used to that from the opposition. Don't mind. Uh, I'm just getting on with delivering things to my electorate, and that's what I'll always continue to do. Uh, you got to name that person for us? Oh, look, um, I'll leave it up to locals to know exactly right. who I'm talking about, Marcus. Um, I'm, I'm far too charitable. I just want to get things done. I just want to get things delivered. That's what I went into politics for. I'll let the rest speak for itself. Just, um, I just wanted to see if you had a, a comment or two to make on South 32. Uh, I just spoke to Labor's resources spokesman, member for Wollongong, Paul Scully, on this issue over the IPC's rejection of the expansion of South 32's coal mine. Um, what do you make of it? I mean, they are, uh, I think they're quite valid concerns over the, the safety of the, the drinking water and the catchment area uh, around those dams. Yeah, well, look, I want a strong resources sector, uh, Marcus. I think it's important that we uh, remember that in many areas of um, uh, the state, and particularly regions, mining has been a feature of that economy for a very long time. And we need to make sure that those jobs survive, that um, our economy is continued to be strong. So I want to see mining continue. But look, there is a, an independent process. There was concerns around the water catchment. Um, in fact, uh, Paul Scully um, is a good friend of mine. He's somebody who I know well. We had a chat about this over the weekend, and, and we want to have a further talk about this when Parliament sits this week um, sure. so that we can make sure we understand the decision uh, and we get the balance right between making sure that we obviously don't compromise Sydney Waters catchment. That's obviously something that is beyond question. We need to make sure we preserve and protect that. Hang on. Are but you telling me time, there's there's bipartisanship on on coal mining on the south coast of New South Wales? Gareth, you're not... <laughs> you don't, I, I mean, I'm, please. I'm, I'm, well, look, I know that the press won't always write about it, but, you know, Marcus, I always do my very best to work with my colleagues from around the parliament. Um, so sometimes there isn't a Liberal thing to do or a Labor thing to do. There's just a right thing to do. Uh, and uh, I always do my best to work with whoever uh, is in front of me uh, to get the best possible outcome, and I'll always do that. Good to have you on, Gareth. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Marcus. Gareth Ward, uh, who's the uh, South Coast MP. And, uh, look, um, Gareth's a uh, long-term mate, if you like. Uh, I've, I mean, I, I've gone had beers with him. Oh, I had a beer with him late last year and had lunch with him. But uh, Gareth does really good work on the South Coast. Uh, and he's one of the only disabled MPs in the state of New South Wales. And he does get things done. And why I like Gareth is, well, I think he just gave me a really good example then. He said he's speaking to his counterpart, Paul uh, Scully, who we just had on before, Gareth, and they're trying to work a, a solution for the people on the South Coast when it comes to, you know, uh, ensuring that the water catchment remains safe and the jobs remain safe as well with South 32's operations there with the Illawarra coal uh, mines and the, the, the coking system. So, look, I think that's well worth uh, a bit of a hooray because that's very rare, as we would know.
131269, the telephone number. <laughs> Okay, four to seven, we're off to the newsroom in just a moment. Now, in an effort to revive Sydney's COVID-hit economy, the city's remaining lockout laws in King's Cross will be lifted to allow venues to open beyond 1.30am in the morning. The government said safety would still be a priority. ID scanners that record patrons' IDs at some venues during busy times will remain, but last drinks will now be served until 3.30 in the morning. So from March 8, people can enter pubs, bars and nightclubs in King's Cross after 1.30 in the morning. Blanket restrictions on shots, cheap cocktails and the use of glass after midnight will be lifted and requirements for responsible service of alcohol marshals and CCTV will no longer apply. Well, that is good. That is good. The axing of the lockout laws were always going to happen. It was a short-term measure put in place to calm things down in areas like the cross and now I'm glad that things are returning to normal. Marcus Paul in the morning. Give Marcus a call. 13 12 69. All right, here we are on Tuesday, February the 9th. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind this morning. Communities want fairness. They want to know that funding, public funding, is being distributed based on need and transparency, and that is not happening in New South Wales right now. Disaster relief funding is now being politicised. It's based on where you live, who represents you, and the benefit to the Liberal and National Party. Communities want fairness. They want to know that funding, public funding, is being distributed based on need and transparency. There we go. Hear, hear, Jody McKay echoing the comments that I made earlier this morning. Why? Because we're bloody well sick of it. I'll play back uh, my chat with the Blue Mountains Mayor, Mark Greenhill, a little later this morning. It left me speechless. Really did. He was there yesterday when John Barillaro basically, again turned around and said, look, nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here at all. This is just Operation Normal. You know, uh, it's your money, New South Wales. I'm sorry. You need to start jumping up and down about this rubbish. It's corruption. Pork barrelling of public money is corruption. It needs to end. $177 million of our money should have gone to the worst affected. Don't worry about, oh, you know, we're going to have another round and we're going to... No, you're only saying that now, Mr Barillaro, Deputy Premier. You're only saying it now because you've been caught out. Again. Again. We thought we'd seen the worst of it with the Stronger Communities Funds. I mean, that was $252 million worth of pork barrelling. This is a further $177 million. What are we going for half a billion dollars of pork barrelling before you're kicked out of office, are we? Reminds me of a front page on a newspaper years ago when Murdoch wanted to have a crack at Kevin Rudd and said, kick this mob out. Well, I'm saying it this morning to New South Wales taxpayers. Kick this mob out. Because they do not believe in equity or fairness when it comes to taxpayer dollars. And I, for one, are absolutely bloody sick of it. I really am. Anyway, 13 12 69, if you'd like to have your say. I'm going to go, go to Andrew Lee very soon right now. James is on the open line. Hello, mate. Morning, Marcus. How are we today? All right, James. What's on I'm your mind? Good. Thank um, you. 
Oh, I've got a couple of things. One, I wish you'd get off this poor crackling. I love poor crackling. I reckon no, it's one of the it's best poor things out. Barreling? There's a oh, difference. We oh. all love pork crackling. What we don't love oh, is pork okay, barreling. Sorry. Okay. All right. Yeah. Right. Come that on, mate. Get it right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, the other thing is, is this mm. black um, bacon lettuce uh, mayo group? Is that all finished? Has it? The bacon BLM. lettuce mayo group. Uh, oh boy. Oh boy. James, go away. <laughs> Andrew Lee. Good morning to you, Andrew. G'day, Marcus. Great to be with you. You too. Tell me, how good is Australia when multinationals and big business that have made a fair bit of money uh, over the last, uh, you know, financial year, first half of the financial year, uh, some of them have decided, look, um, we're going to be fair here. We're going to repay taxpayers the job keeper payments that we've received. Nick Scarley has finally come on board. Thanks to you, Andrew. Well done. It's good to see Nick Scully handing uh, $3.6 million back to the taxpayer markets. Uh, let's not forget, though, that they did receive about twice that. And so uh, I'm really hoping Nick Scully will get such a positive basking of warm approval from the Australian public today that they'll decide to pay back the other half. All right, so is there still, uh, what, another 3.5 missing or something is? Is there? Is that it? They paid back 3.6 and there's uh, 3.9 they received for the first half of last year. Right. Uh, there's no such thing as half a conscience, Marcus, and I think uh, Nick Scully or uh, management ought to recognise uh, that uh, they've done the right thing in paying back half the JobKeeper but paying back the rest would be the right thing to do. They've had very strong profits. They've paid a very significant dividend. Uh, and there are many people out there doing it tough, many of your listeners uh, who are in fragile, fragile employment or looking for work, who need more support in a way that Nick Scarley doesn't. Who's still holding out, Andrew? Who do we need to remind of uh, their public responsibility to Australian taxpayers? That is, uh, look, job seeker was a uh, job keeper. <laughs> Bloody titles, I tell you. JobKeeper was put in place to ensure that people could keep their jobs, businesses could stay afloat. Unfortunately, um, a number of businesses have probably misused this money, some through maybe no fault of their own, uh, considering how dire the economy was at that point. They've gone on to report better than uh, thought profits and they need to repay some of this money back to Australian taxpayers. It's not like the government's pressuring them to do so. I mean, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister last week, accused you of playing politics of envy just because you're asking for these businesses to have a conscience. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The bloke that set up the robo-debt scheme accuses others of playing politics of envy when we're asking billionaires to do the right thing. Uh, Marcus, I'd say if your uh, listeners are in Just Jeans or Smiggle or Portman's today, they might politely mention to the manager that, in their view, uh, the company that owns that, those uh, outlets, Premier Investments, should pay back its JobKeeper. Uh, it received so much money that it was able to not only pay a stonking dividend, a big chunk of which went to its billionaire shareholder, Solomon Liu, but also to pay its CEO a $2.5 million bonus. Good luck to them, but they don't need taxpayer support, and many others could do, could do with uh, greater support right now. We've got huge challenges, as mm. Julian Hill's terrific reports highlighted, uh, in, in education, in climate change, in employment. Uh, way, real wages have gone backwards since the Liberals won office. Australia has become more corrupt. We've become less less productive, uh, and we've become uh, more more in, indebted and, uh, and indeed uh, more unequal over that time. So we need government resources to go to tackling these big challenges that Australia faces, uh, not lining the pockets of some of the most affluent Australians. Yeah. All right. Look, I. <laughs> 
I, I really worry that some of these companies won't pay the money back. How can you ensure that we keep the pressure up, Andrew? You're doing it exactly right now, Marcus. I would be, uh, the example of some firms paying it back, I think, should be commended. I, I do, think, do think that what uh, Nick Scully has done is terrific, uh, but we just need to keep on talking about the issue. We need to keep on ensuring that these firms know uh, that they have an obligation, not just to their shareholders, but to the broader community too. All right. I want to move on to something else. Uh, before we do, I want to play this little bit of audio. Um, I know you'll know where it's from. Here we go. Kick the tires and light the fires, Big Daddy. Kick the tires and light the fires, Big Daddy. What movie is that from, mate? Well, it sounds like Top Gun quite to me, doesn't it, here? Top Gun? Why are we talking about Top Gun this morning, Andrew? Well, the Prime Minister's ego is unfortunately uh, writing checks his body can't cash, Marcus. He's uh, <laughs> in a position where, where he uh, seems to, again, be uh, all ad man and no substance. And he's a bloke that uh, can hold a lump of coal but can't hold a hose who can't do the right thing by Australians in dealing with, say, the PFAS issue up at Williamstown, but just wants the, uh, the cheap, he- cheap headline and the easy story in the nightly news. He didn't get photographed in the cockpit of a fighter jet, did he? Uh, well, he's, he's done everything but. I mean, he's, he's been, uh, been around and about. Hang on, here he is. Yes, Australia's top... Oh, here we go! Finn McHugh today in the Daily Telegraph, um, uh, let's have a look, page two, I think it is. Australia's top gun of politics rode into the danger zone yesterday, entering a Hunter Valley RAAF base to the strains of Kenny Loggins' 80-0 smash it. Danger zone from the top gun soundtrack. Prime Minister Scott Morrison was there to announce that Australia's 33-strong fleet of F-38 a fighter jets had been introduced to blah 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 been inducted etc mm. <laughs> oh no how corny his problem is that his government's a target rich environment Marcus uh, this is a government which has so many uh, flaws which has uh, still got people like Angus Taylor and Stuart Robert as uh, ministers uh, in which education costs are going up Australia's school test scores are going down, mm. while the rest of the world is vaccinating its population, we're yet to roll out, roll out vaccines. And that means the economy is, is poorer for longer as a result of Scott Morrison's mismanagement of the vaccine rollout. All right, but don't worry, he's there, he's in the cockpit, he's in control, he's, I don't know, kicking the tyres and lighting the fires, Andrew? Leadership's about substance, not spin, Marcus. No, oh. the Australian people know this, I and mean, people want a, a leader who will deal with challenges like climate change rather than just uh, spinning, spinning their way to, from headline to headline. Ultimately, the Australian people are winding up to this bloke. I recognise that he's not a problem solver. He's somebody who's got much bigger ambitions for himself than for the country. All right, look, right on cue. I think we'll have to play a little bit of it at least, Andrew. It's great to talk to you as always, mate, OK? Likewise, Marcus. Ten, ten. Look after yourself. I'll see you out there on the runways. <laughs> Bye, mate. It's 20, uh, no, it's 18 after 7, 18 after 7. stuff. Scott Morrison, who was joined by his wingwoman defence minister, Linda Reynolds, his wingwoman defence minister, 
He said the developments strengthen the world-leading Australian local defence force industry. He says it's about protecting and securing Australia's interests, but also creating jobs and driving investment right there in the Hunter and across the country too. We want to give as many opportunities to Australian companies as possible, which is why there's already more than 50 local companies sharing in $2.7 billion worth of contracts as part of the F-35 program. The introduction is part of a $65 billion joint fighter program with the government making the defence industry a central plank of its COVID-19 economic recovery plan. I feel so much safer. Yes, how good's Top Gun? How good's Australia? Well, as Julian Hill explains in a really good piece of research data, not real flash, mate. No matter how many fighter jets you hop into, Scott, uh, at the moment, it's not good. We want to get Julian on the program uh, to talk about this a little later in the week. Well, as you know, um, Scott Morrison has said on a number of occasions when he's rallying the faithful, how good is Australia? How good? Well, not real good. And I'll tell you why. Drawing upon research from the Parliamentary Library, as well as reports from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development and International Data, Labor says he had found, well, Labor has found that Australia became less productive, more unequal, more corrupt, less happy, more indebted, less affluent and less trusting of public institutions than it was when the coalition was elected back in 2013. The report released yesterday assesses the last seven years of coalition government in Australia against global rankings. It'll form part of Labor's next stage of campaigning, a compare and contrast exercise aimed at making voters think of life outside the pandemic response. Julian Hill says the data wasn't new. He's just pulled it together to make a point. There is this propaganda-style myth. Think Top Gun. Think photograph opportunities inside the cockpit of a new um, F-38A fighter jet. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) Propaganda-style myth that the Liberals are great economic managers, but the facts do not support the claim, according to the data. On just about... Every key measure after more than seven years of this government, Australia has gone backwards economically and, in fact, it did far better under Labor. Julian Hill, a backbencher who has been deployed in the past to run attack lines against the government, said data wasn't partisan. Among the metrics is wage growth, which the Reserve Bank Governor, Dr Philip Lowe, has identified as a focus of the central bank this year as it attempts to help steer our economy while vaccines pave the way for the world to begin emerging from the pandemic. The OEC data clearly shows real wages in Australia were 0.7% lower in 2019 compared with 2013. In other words, wages are going backwards. Australia sits 33rd out of 35 countries in terms of wage growth. Only the Netherlands and Spain are worse, and we're well behind comparable economies, including Germany and South Korea. In 2013, Australia ranked 10th amongst OECD nations for productivity. In 2018, we dropped to 5th last. Housing has also become more unaffordable, with Australia now the third most unaffordable housing market after New Zealand and Canada. 
According to the Grattan Institute data used in Hill's report, average full-time earnings and home prices split in the mid-90s, putting home ownership out of reach for many. The data also showed inequality had increased, with the 10% of highest income earners in Australia owning 46% of all household wealth. The lowest earning made up 60% of the population, but can claim just 16% of Australia's household wealth. I mean, how's inequ- how good's inequality, ScoMo? Even before the COVID recession, the highest 20% of households with average after-tax incomes of $4,166 per week had almost six times the income of the lowest 20% with $753 per week. When it comes to wealth inequality, it is even more stark. The highest 20% with average wealth of $3.3 million have 90 times the wealth of the lowest 20% with just $36,000 on average. Mind-boggling. But great economic managers. Australia has slipped in global rankings on climate performance and emissions reductions, while the Australian Electoral Survey showed satisfaction with democracy dropping from 72% in 2010 to 59% in 2019. The point of the data is to remind us that Australia was behind economically before this crisis and is slipping further behind in rankings. The government has pointed to Australia's economic rebound from the pandemic occurring earlier and stronger than predicted, forming the basis of our comeback campaign, whose terminology was adopted after market research as proof of the success of its policies. Hang on. Most Australians know that the economic comeback in this country is underway, the Prime Minister said last week. It began last year. Some 90% of the jobs were lost over the course of the terrible COVID-19 recession and pandemic have come back into our economy. But we need to look at the data and what, what is happening around us instead of just taking the government's word for it. The total picture is damning for the government. We've had three Prime Ministers, three Treasurers and 20-something energy policies under this government and Morrison's spin should not be allowed to cover up the fact that Australia has actually gone backwards under the Liberals and we're falling further behind the rest of the world. Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, um, 13 12 69, my telephone number to have you say. 25 to 8, Ollie's been in touch with us this morning via our social media. Hashtag Marcus Paul in the morning. If you want to follow us there, please give us a like and a follow. Uh, Marcus, don't forget as well that Top Gun, a.k.a. Scott Morrison, also attended a $10,000 per head fundraiser in Newcastle overnight. Isn't it good to know that if you're an everyday Australian citizen with a lazy 10k in your pocket, you too can meet up with the Prime Minister? Oh dear, oh dear. And she sent me a link. Morrison knows he's a winner in The Hunter, says Sky News Australia. Yeah, made the mistake of uh, of tuning into that uh, Sky News yesterday afternoon and I saw the bloke with the glasses, what's his name, Chris Kenny, again defending Craig Kelly. Kenny and Kelly. What a nightmare of a program that would be with those two together. The Kelly and Kennedy Report on Sky. All the right-wing nutjobs in one place. 
Now, Senator Pauline Hanson has called on the Coalition and Labor to join with One Nation in acting legislation to ban the display and use of Nazi and ISIS symbols. Uh, the Senator described the range of symbols used by the Nazis and ISIS as the ultimate symbols of hate, extremism, barbarity and terror. Well, I don't disagree with that. But a number of uh, correspondents to the program this morning say that Pauline should be focused on more important issues. Jake says, hmm, that's going to piss off the extreme right that support her, but credit where it's due. I do support banning ISIS and Nazi flags. And Sean says, gee, Pauline is right on the cusp of the real issues in Australia. Another soundbite gum flap from an irrelevant party to try and keep relevant. You didn't miss, Sean. You didn't miss it all. Anyway, uh, Pauline on the program very soon. Also, Murray River communities are crying tears of despair with the latest revelations from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. We're going to uh, speak to Lloyd Polkinghorne about this. Lloyd, who's done some really good work raising money for charities in in and around the Murray-Darling. Remember, we covered Lloyd's Walk for Water last year and the wonderful work that he's done with Anita Donlan and others from, uh, you know, Beef It Up Australia. It's been wonderful. They've been trying to get the message out there and trying to keep it on the uh, on the minds of politicians in New South Wales and Victoria. The communities down there in the, the Murray-Darling Basin have had a gutful of what's been going on. The plan is supposed to protect the environment, as we know, but in many cases it is having the opposite effect, as local residents continue to point out. So we'll speak to Lloyd about that in the next five, ten minutes. Uh, now, also, the lockout laws that will change in Sydney as of this weekend. Uh, we're trying to track down David Shoebridge for a comment or two on that. Get in contact with Marcus anytime. Email us, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. 18 to 8 on the email from Mike Hooper. G'day, Marcus. So I saw the Prime Minister in the cockpit of the new fighter jet last night. I'm sure I saw the word goose printed on the side of his helmet. Oh! And then this one from Neil regarding JobKeeper. Marcus, if a company has paid out the JobKeeper funds to laid off workers and then makes a profit in its trimmed down form, there is no reason for them to repay the money paid to workers. And then Neil finishes off by reminding me that man-made climate change is a lie and zero emissions by 2050 is stupidity at best. All right, Neil, thank you. It's Broadchurch, this program. Mark, hello. Are you there, mate? Yeah, Neil likes Craig Kelly too. Apparently, I, um, did you see the the uh, the roads minister just got the sack from State Labor? Yes, I the saw transport that. Transport minister. Yeah, you know, he's got an eight hundred thousand dollar payout. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, eight hundred grand. I don't know why or what's going on. The only thing I can think wow. of is that this bloke is being thrown under the bus. Yeah, he's one of the highest-paid executives in the New South Wales government, and isn't it odd, Mark, that this bloke is losing his job uh, right about the Indian time? Nearly a million bucks. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> that's beside the point. He probably, I mean, that's you know, he probably deserves it to be honest, because that's what you know, that's what his his payout will be. But the question you've got to ask is why? Why is the state government shedding this man's position? Uh, while, you know, Andrew Constance and others continue uh, to keep theirs. I, I don't understand. I mean... Yeah, that's weird. And with the money that... Um, with that eye care scandal, that's, there's a lot of, lot of bad things happening now with this government. 
I'm just having a look. I'm trying to get this bloke's name. I'm, I'm, I'm thumbing through the telegraph and nothing, nothing, nothing on it at all. Well, so, I wouldn't have it in the telegraph. Of course, they wouldn't. Why not? The other thing why is, why, why um, wouldn't they have it in the telegraph? Oh, yeah, what do you expect? Okay. The other thing is, I'm, I'm starting to get a bit annoyed at Boris, and like, I didn't think he was that bad at first, but he never answered a straight question. When he was asked what he's going to do about Kelly, he just fobs it off as if it doesn't really matter. Well, yesterday, uh, John got a bit annoyed with him, John Laws. Uh, Laws, he got a bit upset because... We didn't hear that, did you? No, I missed that. Oh, you missed out on all the fun. Well, yesterday, John had a a bit of a a dig at the Prime Minister. I'll play the audio soon. Play it later. Yeah, stay listening. I'll play the audio after 8 o'clock, okay, mate? By the name name of this, uh, this bureaucrat who's been sacked is the top transport bureaucrat... Uh, who Rod Staples, his name is, by the way, Rod Staples, he'll receive a payout of more than $800,000 after he was sacked without reason six weeks after a positive performance review with the Premier. Well, that's odd. Why are you sacking somebody who had a positive performance review? Transport for New South Wales Secretary Rod Staples will leave his position next week, three months after he was told his contract would be terminated with, quote-unquote, no stated reason. Correspondence between Mr Staples and Tim Reardon, the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, has been provided to the New South Wales Parliament under an order from the Upper House. The documents reveal Mr Reardon told Mr Staples, a long-time public servant, he would be sacked under Section 41 of the Government Sector Employment Act, which allows for executives to be terminated at any time for any or no stated reason without notice. Wow, with friends like that, eh? (laughs) A spokesman for the Premier said this was a decision made by the Transport Minister. Documents show Mr Staples' termination payout will be $837,584, which includes 38 weeks' pay and his outstanding leave entitlements. His annual salary, by the way, is just shy of six hundred dollars In a letter to Mr Reardon, Mr Staples said there had been no issues with his performance. I accept this termination in the context that my documented performance, including my recent performance, uh, blah, blah, blah. So basically, um, Mr Staples is saying, well, look, if you're going to sack me, and if you're going to throw me under the bus, make sure you don't run, run me over, OK, so I can get out the other side and move on with my life and my career. But the question needs to be asked, why? Why are taxpayers in New South Wales forking out more than $800,000 for a bloke who is apparently, by all accounts... Doing a good job. After a positive performance review with the Premier, six weeks passes and the bloke's out on his ear. Why? No reason? Well, I suspect there is a reason, and it's being hidden by the state government. Andrew Constance has been under a stack of pressure lately, whether it's faulty trains or whether it's decapitation via the new ferries, etc. They've been looking for somebody to, I don't know, throw under the ferry, so to speak. (laughs) And I think that this bloke, Mr. Stables, is the fall guy. Murray River communities are crying tears of despair with the latest revelations from the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. We've been speaking about this at length over months and months on the program. We know what's going on down there. Uh, the commodification of water. We played some audio yesterday from Jordan Shanks, a.k.a. Friendly Geordies, which left no doubt... No doubt whatsoever that those with the deepest pockets are getting the most water. Those 
who are harvesting water are flogging it off when times are bad for farmers. Mum and dad operators, well, they're the ones crying tears of despair. Lloyd Polkinghorne has done some wonderful work down there trying to cheer the spirits. We had Lloyd's walk for water last year and apparently he's on another mission today. Hello, Lloyd. G'day, Marcus. How are you going, mate? Well, thank you. You're leaving Hay this morning on a bus tour to the Menindee Lakes. Yeah, that's right. We uh, gathered a, a group of farmers and in family farmers and environmentalists and uh, people passionate about the region. And we've we left Kiuna yesterday, which is in northern Victoria, and we're working our way out to Menindee to uh, show our solidarity with the people along the Darling there and, and what's yeah. currently happening. What is currently happening? Tell me, Lloyd. Just, just break it down for my listeners, please, mate. Righto. Well, the Darling River, the listeners may be aware of all the fish kills and the things that have been happening on the lower Darling. And so currently there's not enough water comes down the Darling to remain, connectivity to remain between the Darling River and the Murray. Traditionally, sometimes it would go dry in a drought year, but currently we have huge interception by floodplain harvesting. That's been proven with satellite imagery. Um... Right now at the moment, Melinda Pavey, New South Wales Water Minister, is trying to licence these guys because they're currently unlicensed. Yeah. So she wants to create, well, we estimate between 2 and $4 billion worth of licences to give them, and there's no protections in place for the people downstream. So they actually want to shut off the Menindee Lake system, so the majority of it. They actually want to kill off the ecology and all the bird breeding and all the cultural significance there. And uh, I think that's disgusting. I think everyone in New South Wales should be uh, up in arms over this. All right, you say a Murray-Darling Basin Authority report blaming environmental damage in a fragile stretch of the river on century-old gold binding is incomprehensible. Communities have expressed increasing concern at the damage to riverbanks and their environments, environs rather, from increased flows under the Murray-Darling Basin plan. What do you mean by that, yep. mate? Yeah, so on the Murray system, we have a natural constraint, which is called the Barmer Choke. So the Barmer Millowa Forest there, 40,000 years ago, there was a shift in the tectonic plates and it raised up and created this restriction. Now, under the Basin Plan, they're trying to push more and more water through the choke and it's actually reducing in capacity. It's filling up with sand and sediment. Um, the banks upstream are disappearing, the beaches upstream are disappearing and then the MDBA puts out this report to try and may blame gold miners from the 1800s. Now, since 1937, thereabouts, we've had two dams in that system so the sand wouldn't actually carry through those dams because there's not enough water velocity, they'd drop out. And the report actually lists itself that it's a hypothesis. It actually hasn't been peer-reviewed and they actually don't talk about all the other beaches and things that are missing just upstream of the Barmer Choke. So I think it's ridiculous. I think it's amazing that in this day and age we can have a department in charge of our water resources putting out something like that. Yeah, mate, where do people go uh, to get a really good idea of what's happening on the Murray-Darling? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's much, much more than we can uh, briefly mention this morning on this program in this format, but uh, people need to educate themselves about the mismanagement of this river system, don't they, Lloyd? Yeah, absolutely. There's two sides to this story, and, you know, communities, we're, there are small communities out here, and we do our best to try and advocate. So on the Facebook, they can go to Lloyd's Walk for Water, 
There's also uh, some groups that the Menindee people run, so they can search those. And it's just good to get an understanding from people on the ground. You know, you, you pull apart and you get rid of all the politics and all the rubbish. We actually want a sustainable basin for everyone. We actually want healthy communities, healthy family farmers and a healthy environment. And if we manage it properly, there is enough water within the system for everyone to be prosperous and healthy. Well said, well said, mate. It's good to talk to you again. Good luck today. We'll catch up with you very soon. Thanks, Marcus. All the best. All right, there he is, Lloyd Polkinghorne, who's doing just a wonderful, wonderful job down there keeping uh, the Menindee Lakes, keeping uh, the Murray-Darling Basin in check. Well, certainly trying his best to anyway. Uh, by the way, just on water tomorrow, Helen Dalton, our hashtag water warrior. I'm happy to say Helen will be joining us in the studio tomorrow. Wonderful. Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's Star Witness in the box today, and that is the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro. John, at least, uh, has the kahunas to show up. The Premier... Not at all. David Shoebridge joins us on the program. The Blue Mountains, on the government's own analysis, suffered more than $65 million in economic loss. The Central Coast suffered more than $150 million in economic loss. Ballina on the North Coast, that community suffered more than $85 million in economic loss. Collectively, they, those three areas suffered more than $315 million in economic loss. And guess how much money they received, Marcus? Uh, zero? <laughs> yeah, not one red cent. Not, not, a, not a dollar. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah. You can hear my response to what John Barillaro had to say yesterday in relation to this uh, when he fronted this inquiry. Headed by David Shoebridge. I had a big rant this morning about it. Might play a re might replay a little bit of it for you after eight o'clock. And we'll hear John Laws taking on the PM after eight as well. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning. Hey, don't forget to keep an eye out for creepy crawlies, like funnel web spiders. The recent warm weather coupled with consistent rain across New South Wales has seen a surge in funnel web spiders in and around residential areas. The Australian Reptile Park is urging residents to educate themselves on how to safely catch and secure a funnel web spider. Really? I don't want to catch any one of these things. Anyway, you can if you do have a funnel web in your yard. I don't know, maybe call the Australian Reptile Park. They're looking for them. They milk them, of course, for their venom. We're off to the newsroom in just a couple of moments, leading up to 8 o'clock. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company on this Tuesday. It is February 9. Marcus Paul in the morning. Email Marcus and follow the show on social media by going to 2sm.com.au. Alrighty, One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson on the program very soon. It's now five and a half after rates. 131269 is our telephone number if you'd like to have your say. We'll talk some tech as well this half hour with our tech experts, Trevor Long. Trev, not too far away. We'll go to Canberra, Christina in the capital, and David Shoebridge will call in, Sydney Independent David Shoebridge. Uh, not David Shoebridge, Alex Greenwich. Spoke to David the other day. Alex Greenwich on the program as well, talking about the changes to lockout laws in New South Wales. He's been campaigning long and hard to have these laws lifted. 
Now, when your Strata complex unit or your commercial building is in need of repairs or upgrades, Network Construction Services are the remedial building specialists with over 70 years of combined industry experience. For waterproofing, concrete cancer repairs, facading, cladding replacement, structural repairs, upgrades to electrical and fire services, and improving accessibility, the experts at Network Construction Services can do it all. If you need repairs, refurbishments or maintenance to your strata complex unit or commercial building and you need it completed on time, within budget and to the very highest standards of quality, Network Construction Services are the remedial building specialists that you can trust. You can find out more at networkconstructionservices.com.au or give Steve a call at Network, their number 9808-5673. You got it? Nine eight zero eight five six seven three for network construction services. And now on Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus has been absolutely fantastic to give me that platform to have a say on a lot of topics that I speak about. Pauline Hanson. Yes, as you know, this program is a broad church of ideas. We hear from all aspects on the political spectrum. Just can't get the Prime Minister or the Premier on because the questions might be a little too hard, but they're never too hard for Pauline. Hello. Good morning, Marcus. It's great to talk to you. I like I like this idea. Someone's finally standing up for common sense. You're calling on the Coalition and Labor to join with your party, One Nation, enacting legislation to ban the display and use of disgraceful Nazi and ISIS symbols. Most definitely I am. Marcus on the floor of Parliament, the left side, mainly the Greens, and also the Labor Party constantly going out and screaming about extremism, about white privilege, and um, they're on about this all the time. Actually, it takes too much time on the floor of Parliament. Yeah. I had a go at them last week about it. Yes, if there is a rise about um, people wearing their SWAT sticker, the Nazi, the bat, you know, as one fellow was, let's, let's stop them, put a stop to it. Because under the section, and I'm picking this up, because under Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, yeah. it says it's unlawful for a person to do any act other than in private if the act is um, generally... Oh, what I'm saying? That's it's, okay. It's causing, yeah, it's likely to um, cause um, circumstances to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate another person or well, group of people. Let's be honest, and, Pauline. It's, I mean, they are the ultimate symbols of hate, extremism, barbarity and terror and they have no place in modern-day Australian society anywhere. Correct. And about eight, eight or nine other countries around the world have banned it. So why shouldn't we? So let's put a stop to it and I'm going to call on the government to actually join me in doing this and yes. um, we should do it. Do you think you'll get uh, any support on this? Look, you know what I put on the floor of Parliament, all lives matter. Not yep. one of them other than Senator um, Malcolm Roberts, my senator, put me on it. They're gutless. They really are gutless when it comes to doing anything about it. But um, I'm putting pressure on the government to actually stand up to it. Yeah, but we I, cannot yeah. keep having the left side of politics talking about white privilege, which is a load of garbage, and I'm offended by that, mm-hmm. when, you know, we allow this to go on. So put a stop to it. Look, I'm all for free speech, uh, but free speech does not mean that we should enable hate speech. Totally agree. 
Totally agree. But the symbol of the Nazi swastika, you know, what it did to people, family and friends that are still here um, and who have been through it. My mother-in-law went through it. She was a refugee that came out from Poland. She was in the concentration camps. My husband was was her son. So it's, uh, you know, it does, they never get over it. All right, it's it's always there in the back of their minds, and I think we need to stamp it out. Well, absolutely, Pauline. Uh, my Oma and my Opa fled from Hungary uh, at the height of the Second World War. If they hadn't have fled, then probably I wouldn't be here. So True. there we go. It's yep. it's that important, and it's uh, I don't understand why it hasn't been stamped out long before this. And well done for bringing it up. Thank you. All right, Pauline. Always great to have you on the program. We'll talk soon. All right, thanks, Marcus. One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson. All right, uh, well, I mentioned to Pauline just before I went to Pauline that, you know, despite numerous invitations, the Prime Minister of this country refuses to come on the program. Um, I think he's being protected by his staff because, you know, I won't fall for the spin. Yesterday... I saw the great John Laws also failed to fall for the spin. It's always good to hear what you've got to say. You're the boss, and Australia cares about what you say. They don't care too much about what Craig Kelly says. What are, what are, what are your thoughts on Craig Kelly? Oh, well, we dealt with that last week, I think. That got, that got enough oxygen last week, John, so we're, we're just focused. No, 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 no. It didn't get oxygen here. I mean, do you have a... a <laughs> I don't matter your program. There are plenty of other places, so I think we should stick with that. <laughs> in, uh, in other words, you're avoiding the question, the Prime Minister. That's very unlike you. No, I'm just saying, John, I think, you know, it's very important that we focus on the facts. That's what the government is doing. And uh, I took some action on that last week, and uh, we're focused on getting this vaccine rolled out. And, and as, as exactly as you say, you know, continue to encourage Australians through the information we're getting out there, the medical advice that we're receiving... I mean, we're seeing already some really good results coming out of places like Israel, um, where there's been, you know, they've they've been able to um, move very quickly across the pretty much the whole population. We're seeing some good results there, so it's promising news. But we're not getting ahead of ourselves. Um, we've pre- been preparing and planning uh, for this inoculation of the country now for some time, getting if everything from the vaccination certificates sort of worked out and, and how the jabs will be delivered and working with the GPs and the pharmacists and the hospitals and the states. Um, so we, we're getting all ready to go and uh, it won't be long now. Well, I'll tell you what, Prime Minister, you're a master at it. You got me right off Craig Kelly. I need never return again. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, John. No, listen, you're very clever at that. You know, 10 out of 10. That's very good because you weren't going to let me get involved with the Craig Kelly thing. So off you went on another on another tack. That's very clever. Good on you, Prime Minister. A very important issue getting vaccinations rolled out, John. Yeah, well, that, that's true. That's very, very important. Hmm. But uh, the Australian, just before we finally do get totally away, and I understand what you're trying to do, the, the Australian reported this morning that Craig Kelly has gone on Facebook again about uh, uh, after uh, intervention after your reportedly, you, you reprimanded him for his spooking bonus the, the bogus theories about the uh, the treatment of COVID. Is that right? He's gone back onto to Facebook? He's not talking about vaccinations. He's talking about other treatments. But um, the, the chief medical advice to me on, on is, is, the, is what uh, determines government policy and, uh, and only treatments that are approved uh, should, be, should be used. 
All right, there he is, uh, the Prime Minister yesterday uh, on the Laws program. And, yeah, well done to Lawsy. Uh, wouldn't stand for the spin. The slogans from uh, the marketing genius himself. Just back to this story on Rod Staples at 18 after 8. The Berejiklian government sacked Rod Staples as the head of transport for New South Wales for no reason just weeks after the Premier formally uh, praised his performance as Department Secretary. The decision to remove Mr Staples last November triggered a taxpayer-funded payout to him worth more than $800,000. At the time, Transport Minister Andrew Constance refused to explain why the government removed Mr Staples. Instead, he said, now is the time for a new focus on delivering our record infrastructure program. But documents obtained by this program in the New South Wales Legislative Council show the dismissal was for no stated reason. It followed a performance review by the Premier in August that found Mr Staples' performance was, quote-unquote, above satisfactory. The decision to remove Rod Staples leaves Transport for New South Wales leaderless. He finishes as Department Secretary at the end of this month, and the government has yet to announce his replacement, which made it the government will get the gig. Now on Marcus Paul in the morning, talking all things tech, Trevor Long. G'day, EFTM.com. Oh, I nearly uh, got rid of EFTM.com there. Trev, how are you, mate? Morning, Marcus. I'm real well. Excellent. Great to talk to you. Um, how have things been, by the way? Yeah, been real good. Been busy and uh, not, not stopping, so 2021's looking good. All right. Now, on your website, what are you talking about? Look, there's a lot going on, and uh, I think one of the things that I uncovered yesterday was some uh, information from the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, that they have mm. approved a very small part, but an important part of Apple's submission for the Apple Watch. Now, right. about two and a half years ago, the Apple Watch was announced, uh, the, the fourth version, was announced to have this ECG function. Now, ECG is not something you mess with. This is, uh, this is an important medical function. But in America, yeah. it had medical certification. But it was not released in Australia. So that function, ECG, is not available in Australia because the TGA have not approved it. But right. They have approved, I've discovered just in, in the last week, they've approved irregular rhythm notifications, which means the Apple Watch, they believe, is capable of alerting you to an irregular heart rhythm. Mm-hmm. And that is the first step towards approving the ECG. So I feel quite confident that in the next month or two, we're going to get approval for the ECG function of the Apple Watch, which is phenomenal, Marcus. People with any concerns about their heart, the ability to get a notification that you have an irregular heart rhythm, and then on the spot perform an ECG is groundbreaking because normally any concerns about your heart, you book a, book a doctor's appointment, you go to the doctor, by then that irregular heart rhythm might be gone. So this is huge. It'll be a great thing and uh, if approved and when approved, available on the Apple Watch from the Series 4 onwards. All right. Um, TikTok on your television, is that a thing? Come on. What about YouTube? Oh, I, I think it's going to be a massive thing. Um TikTok have released an app for Android TVs uh, around the world, but not available yet in Australia. But I've hacked my way into it and had a look. I've got to say, <laughs> TikTok is is a bit addictive, more so than YouTube. And I think this is a sign that TikTok is on the up and up. Um, YouTube is uh, amazing content, but long form, whereas TikTok yeah. is quick, short bites of content. And mm. sitting, watching it on your TV is just a, a mind-numbing experience. And I, I have no shame in admitting 
I'm happy to watch TikTok for 20 minutes a day because it takes my focus off everything else going on in the world. And trust me, in the next couple of years, we'll be seeing TikTok on every smart TV, I'm sure. Just off uh, your regular, I just want to get a comment on this because you're, mm. you know, you're up with everything uh, technology. Yep. Today is Safer Internet Day. And yep. uh, time and time again, I talk on the program of brilliant work done by police and other investigators in 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 cracking down on online grooming. Even yep. up till yesterday, we had another alleged predator who'd stalked and uh, basically connected with a, six, a a person under sixteen years of age around Campbelltown and tried to meet up with her, etc. But she finally fessed up to her parents and said, I've been talking to this guy and now I'm really worried, Mum and Dad. It's really important that parents keep an eye on their kids on their devices. Spot on. And look, there's a, there's a couple of important things here. The first one, you've got to have rules and you've got to have conversations. This stuff doesn't work if you just come down hard on your kids for uh, doing what you believe is the wrong thing. If they didn't know it was the wrong thing, it's very hard for them to understand. You've got to make the rules. You've got to set rules in your family. And you must make it possible for your kids to want to talk to you. It's amazing and fantastic that young girl was able to come to her parents, perhaps too late, but, but, but no matter what, they, they got it in time. And I think that we need to know that our kids are going to trust us to talk about it. You need to monitor your kids. Your kids need to know that you're going to look at their phone when they're in bed at night. You're going to check who they've been talking to. And if any point during the day, this is what I do to my teenager, if he's sitting there with his He's, he's, he's looking at me so I can only see the back of his phone. Mm. I just say, turn your phone around. And, and if he doesn't turn his phone around so I can see what he's doing, I'm suspicious. And so we have this relationship where he knows I'm big brother, but he knows that I'm looking out for him. So you've got to have those conversations with your kids. All right, mate. Just uh, finally, I've been critical of, uh, of more and more mainstream sport moving to... Um, to a subscription television, whether it's mm. Foxtel or others, and I've been very disappointed. I've been clear in my comments on this that I believe Cricket Australia have sold out its fans by doing a deal with uh, Foxtel for one-day cricket. It should be, in my opinion, on free-to-air television, cricket being our major sport in this country. Sports rights, though, are the... Uh, well, there is a new frontier. Netball is all in with Foxtel, but some of it's free. So what's going on here? This is huge. And, Marcus, you're going to get more frustrated, trust me, over the next couple of years. I believe that mm. what we're seeing today yeah. is uh, a bit of Foxtel and others wrangling to essentially set a new benchmark for the way sport is broadcast. Normally, the biggest events that appear on the anti-siphoning list, Melbourne Cup, for example, um, Olympics, they, they have to be on free-to-air. Now, free is what's, what's the important part of that, and the legislation talks about being free to Australians. Netball has been signed by Foxtel in totality. So there's no free-to-air partner, no 7, no 9, no 10. But to get around the concept of anti-siphoning, though most of these events don't appear on that list, they're using the app KO, which you can download, and instead of charging people money, if you don't have a subscription, you just download the app. Some of the events, some weekly events and the Aussie Diamonds events, will Mm. be available just for free. So I think you're about to see... KO Foxtel suggesting that their free version of KO is as adequate as free-to-air television in terms of getting a sport as free to Australians. This is a huge change, and it'll be big when sports rights come up with the AFL, NRL, and others over the coming years. Well, that's very true. Um, again, I stand by my point. I, uh, look, there's uh, and no disrespect. I know how big netball is. It's a major sport here in Australia. It's p- played by hundreds of thousands of women in particular around the country. But it is a, f- 
I hate to use this word, fringe sport in relation to you know, well, but, commercial but viability. Is, it's, yeah. it's the thin edge, thin edge of the wedge. Yeah, okay. So what they're doing is they're testing the waters here mm. so that when the next cricket writes, the next... So Seven and Foxtel have the cricket now, right? Yeah. What's to say Foxtel doesn't buy all the cricket next time? Well, that, so there's that would, nothing no, sorry, on free Yeah, no, that would be Cricket Australia signing their death knell. Well, and, and it would be the government having to analyse whether or not that is in breach of the anti-siphoning rules. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating. All right, buddy. Always great to have you on, mate. Appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Okay, there he is, Trevor Long. Thanks to eftm.com.au. Make sure you, you get on board and have a look at all the latest tech there on Trev's page. Marcus Paul in the morning where it's now 25 and a half minutes after 8. Let's go to die. Now on Marcus Paul in the morning. The Queen Bee of the Newsroom, Diane Coveney-Garland. Did you play netball, Di? I did play netball. Okay. Do you watch netball on television? Watch little bits and pieces of it. Okay. Of course, I never played that well. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering because uh, in relation to our discussion just then uh, on anti-siphoning laws, etc., I'm just wondering um, whether... There is a market, I'm sure. So many women around Australia play netball. Yeah. So maybe Foxtel are onto something here, and I, I don't blame them for doing it. I, I just worry that you know big sports like your, your cricket, which is our major sport, mm. will only one day one day be available for subscribers, and that that places a lot of people out of the market. Well, well, it, look, it does. And and my, for example, my dad, he he loves to watch cricket over you know after Christmas Boxing Day Absolutely. test that is that is he sits well, they're there they're on free to wear on 7 which is good exactly, but, it's one day but is if another. that changed in the mm. future then um, yeah what would he do well, that's what I mentioned mm. uh, you know they'd be signing their death knell surely exactly you think so sport. yeah yeah Di, that's all we have time for oh, at least you know I played netball I do not very well but I played but at least you were a participant absolutely excellent thank you <laughs> Talk soon. There she is, Diane Coveney-Garland. You can hear her reading the news after 9 o'clock this morning. Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. It's Star Witness in the box today, and that is the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, John Barillaro. John, at least, uh, has the kahunas to show up. The Premier, not at all. David Shoebridge joins us on the program. The Blue Mountains, on the government's own analysis, suffered more than $65 million in economic loss. The Central Coast suffered more than $150 million in economic loss. Ballina on the North Coast, that community suffered more than $85 million in economic loss. Collectively, they, those three areas suffered more than $315 million of economic loss. And guess how much money they received, Marcus? Uh, zero? <laughs> yeah, not one red cent. Not, not, a, not a dollar. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All righty. 24 to 9. John Laws after 9 o'clock this morning. Just by the way, uh, in relation to uh, what we... Uh, Covered yesterday with David Tuberidge and the events of that hearing. Uh, this morning we took a call from the Blue Mountains Mayor Mark Greenhill. And he was less than impressed by the excuses made by the Deputy Premier John Barillaro. And I had a bit of a spray about it. And hopefully it'll echo right across the state to let politicians know, no matter what colour they are, uh, they don't care whether they're Labor, Liberal or otherwise, we are sick to death of the misappropriation of taxpayer money. The money 
that you and I go and work for each and every day, and God knows we pay enough taxes in this country, in this state. We're one of the most overly taxed nations on earth. And we do it because, well, that's what we do here in Australia. What is un-Australian, though, is letting the rest of the side down simply because they didn't vote for you in an election. We need to tell our politicians we are sick to the back teeth of pork barrelling. I don't care whether John Barillaro or the Premier think it's, you know, it's the status quo. It's time to change the status quo. People in the Blue Mountains, people in other areas of the state who are bushfire affected should not be politicised. And that's exactly what John Barillaro did yesterday. And the Premier's done previously. Enough is enough, for goodness sake. Hello, Marie. How are you? Good morning, Marcus and JR and all the listeners out there. Marcus, we're going to continue to have a breakdown in law and order until punishment meets the crime. When a young bus driver can't drive his bus, he's been doing it for three years, that someone takes it upon themselves to throw bleach into his face. We don't hang people for rape or murder anymore. Mm. But I tell you what, Mason, Marcus, nothing is going to change unless a damn public flogging comes into some of these people and they're named and shamed in the front pages of the paper. Yeah. Look, Marie, uh, it's, you think it's bad down here. It's far worse in Queensland. Boy, oh, boy, it's, it's like, you know, shoot out at the OK Corral in places like, oh, I don't know, Townsville in North Queensland. Boy, oh, boy, they've got a real issue up there, up there in North Queensland when it comes to law and order. That's because the Palaszczuk government is simply too soft. Way, way too soft. They also don't chase people when they steal vehicles. There's the no chase law in place, which means that kids are able to run rampant up there and do donuts and burnouts out the front of the cop shop, knowing that the police can't hop in their vehicles and chase them down. It's ridiculous. All right, uh, member for Sydney, Alex Greenwich, on the lockout laws in just a moment. David, hello, mate. The teacher says, how do you spell education? The pupil says, E-double-D-U-K-A-Y-S-H-U-N. Ah, hang on. No, it's wrong. (laughs) The teacher said, that's not how the dictionary spells it. The pupil said, you didn't ask me how the dictionary spells it. (laughs) Marcus Paul in the morning. Email Marcus and follow the show on social media by going to 2sm.com.au. 20 to 9. Hello, Chris. Hi, Marcus. How are you? All right, thanks, Chris. What's on your mind? How many, how many more blunders this state government has to make to be held accountable, man? It's, we, they're disgraceful people. You know, everything, everything is there. They're spending money here, left and right. That, you know, I don't know. Well, uh, we need to keep talking about it, Chris. And, uh, on programs like this, there aren't many of them out there. Uh, you know, uh, stay away from, I don't know, those who continually support and sprout the LNP line. I mean, there's nothing on the front page today of the Daily Telegraph on what happened yesterday. Uh, are we that with stupid Barilaro. or what? The, well, no, think- it's, it's the media. You've got to be careful what you consume, who you listen to, and and basically don't be tricked by it because there is a, uh, you know, there's a campaign of misinformation which continues day in, day out. It's led by Murdoch. It's also backed up by, you know, his Sky News outfit here in New South Wales, in Sydney in particular, overnight and uh, after dark. And, you know, they're not calling out these issues because, well, they're mates with those who are in power. And we've had enough of it. 
we should be uh, who should be the one sign where they're going to spend this money and ever it's their money that can, you know well, absolutely right, Chris. It is our money, and I think we're sick to death of it being pork-barrelled for political gain. OK, well, lockout laws finally change as of this weekend, I think it is. Let's find out more from the man who's been behind the push to have these changes put in place. Alex Greenwich, member for Sydney. G'day, Alex. Good morning, Marcus. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, mate. Any time. Tell me, what changes this weekend and why are they for the better, you think? Well, you know, global cities shouldn't tell people when to go to sleep. Uh, and uh, we need to make sure instead that you can have a safe and fun night out. And, and I'm really grateful that we're at the stage now where the lockouts will now uh, go across um, across the Sydney CBD. But the, the only place they currently exist is King's Cross and the government has today announced they will be removing the lockouts in the cross. Uh, this, this follows quite a process. If you remember, the lockouts were brought in in quite a rush. Yeah. Um, however, there's been, uh, there's been a joint select committee. Uh, there has been a 12-month review. Um, and the government is now in a place where they are comfortable with removing the lockouts in King's Cross, and it, it couldn't happen any sooner. I think we were all behind it at first. Something there needed to be a circuit breaker. There were, you know, one punch or coward attacks that led to the deaths of very innocent people. Um, I think the lockout laws have been in play for way, way too long. It was a circuit breaker, and it did lead to a, uh, you know, to a reduction in violence. Uh, you know, that policy has some merit, but. It's lingered on for far too long at the expense of small businesses operating in places like King's Cross and in Sydney. Indeed. And, you know, the, the policy settings have also changed. Uh, so, and transport options have increased. So if you look back to 2014, there was no light rail. There was no Uber. Uh, we didn't have the same regularity of, of uh, public transport in the evenings. We also had uh, this ridiculous taxi changeover system, which meant that people would be stranded in King's Cross. Yeah. In addition to that, we had 24-hour licensed venues all next to each other just offering drinking. Uh, instead, now what we have is more transport options at night, a policy setting that ensures we do not have the cumulative impact of 24-hour licensed venues all next to each other, um, greater diversity of offering in the cross as well in terms of dining, entertainment, theatre, uh, so this is an exciting time for King's Cross. It has been doing it tough, um, but as I said, this news couldn't come in any sooner, and hopefully it brings hope to some of those businesses who have been really doing it tough. Yeah. So the last of Sydney's lockout laws is set to be scrapped in a bid to revive the city's ailing economy. King's Cross will be moved in line with other CBD venues and allowed to operate beyond one thirty from March 8. It'll allow patrons to continue to enter pubs, bars and nightclubs in the area beyond one thirty. Uh, the changes also mean last drinks will be pushed back to 3.30am. Restrictions on drinks, shots, cheap cocktails and the use of glass after midnight will be lifted. One thing that is a little concerning for a number of my listeners, and before uh, uh, I spoke to you, some of them emailed through, the requirement for responsible service of alcohol marshals and CCTV will no longer apply. That's a bit of a concern to some of my listeners. Look, there are, um, there are extremely strong licensing requirements in place. Obviously, responsible service of alcohol is something that is mandated and people have to be educated um, at, to, to work in a licensed premise. In addition, in the cross, 
Um, it, they are also keeping the ID scanner system in place um, uh, for, for the time being. And there is strong CCTV footage uh, right across the area. So yeah. I, I don't think those those concerns are well-founded. Okay. Um, the, cross, the cross has changed substantially. Mm. Um, as I said, we don't have these 24-hour bear bombs anymore. A lot of them have turned into gyms. Um, now what we have is some really great small bars, destination dining, mm. um, great, great theatres, and hopefully we have some new venues pop up that can add to that diversity of the area as well. Sounds good to me. And importantly, we need to remember as well during this uh, current uh, climate of COVID, I mean, to get into any of these places, you have to provide photographic ID. You need to, you know, basically, you know, with with your phone, you need to make sure that you're filling in the QR codes correctly, etc. So I think there are enough measures in place to keep it safe. Absolutely. And, you know, we're... We now have the one system across the CBD, which makes it, uh, which ensures that people can have a night where they could hopefully, you know, go go, go to go to a whole different offering of venues, yeah. uh, know that they can have a safe fun night, and importantly, know that they can get home. Good to talk to you, Alex. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Marcus. Talk soon. There he is, member for Sydney, Alex Greenwich. We'll go to Canberra next with Christina in the capital. Now on Marcus Paul in the morning. I have always believed in miracles. The latest from the capital with Christina Rosengren. Okay, 11 to 9. Hello, Christina. Hello, Marcus. Welcome back. Are you feeling better today? Yes, I am. Thank you. Good to hear. The Nationals, they've signalled they'd fight any attempt to introduce a target of net zero carbon emissions. Yes, so the Nationals are making it uh, increasingly clear that they're not fans of setting a target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That's currently still not something the government's planning to legislate or pursue, but we did have uh, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, last week, as we mentioned, uh, say that his preference is to achieve that goal even before 2050. Now, uh, National Senator Matt Canvan has come out to say that if the government should try to legislate it, uh, he would cross the floor to vote against it and Nationals backbencher Barnaby Joyce has made some comments along those lines as well. Now, Nationals leader Michael McCormack, he's also been a bit resistant to the idea. He says that if it is going to be government policy, then agriculture needs to be exempt from it, and that's with a view of protecting regional communities. But, you know, it's important to note that excluding agriculture would make that target a lot harder and more expensive because you'd have to be more aggressive in reducing emissions elsewhere to make up for that exemption. And not to mention that the National Farmers Federation has already set a target of net zero emissions by 2050. So the agriculture sector is already considering ways to reach that goal. So not entirely certain Mr McCormack's suggestion has merit, but the Nationals are certainly looking up, looking like they're gearing up for a bit of a fight should the, the Liberals or, or other government members yeah. try to um, move to you know, legislate this target. All right, we're chasing Matt Canavan for a chat on the program tomorrow. Labor's unveiling a new industrial relations policy which will crack down on contractors and job security, Christina. Yes, so Labor leader Anthony Albanese is travelling to Queensland this week and that's where he's going to be giving a speech on industrial relations uh, which will focus on three key areas and that's casualisation, giving more rights to gig economy workers and ensuring labour hire workers are paid at least as much as direct employees working alongside them. So that last one, that's addressing something which can happen when uh, industries like mining, for example, have union-negotiated enterprise agreements with staff, uh, but then they can also hire workers from labour hire providers 
that don't have pay deals, so that leaves them with different incomes. So Labor wants to be Labor wants them to be paid the same amount for the same work. And Mr Albanese will be talking about this in his speech tomorrow. Industrial relations, as we've spoken about before, is, is really shaping up as a major policy battleground for the next federal election. The yeah. government has its own omnibus bill with lots of IR reforms, but uh, Labor has decided to oppose it and create its own IR policy suggestions, and that's really with a view of setting up an alternative to the government's proposals. All right, and finally, new data shows that we accessed almost $10 billion more from superannuation than the government had predicted. Yes, so the government's early uh, release superannuation program wrapped up on the 31st of December. It was an eight-month program, and that allowed people who were under financial pressure due to the pandemic to withdraw up to $20,000 from their retirement savings, and that's with, uh, in two withdrawals, so $10,000 per application. Now, we've had the official data from that program provided by AFRA released, and that shows that 3.5 million Australians overall participated in this scheme, and collectively they withdrew $36.4 billion from their superannuation. So that's almost uh, $10 billion more than the government had forecast would be withdrawn. Now, the average payment was $7,638, and uh, of the 3.5 million who took part, there were 1.4 million who made two withdrawals. Now, obviously, that's a lot of money, and it comes in the midst of this debate about uh, what this will mean for retirement savings in the future, and uh, also about this debate about whether the Morrison government should follow through on a legislative increase in the percentage amount an employer has to pay uh, into a worker's super account, not to mention that Coalition and Peter are also suggesting first home buyers be allowed to use their super to help buy a property. So there's a bit of debate at the moment about whether super is being raided and you know, if it's being used for what it was set up for, which could also lead to, you know, possible over-reliance on the age pension in the future. All right, Christina, good to talk to you. We'll catch up again tomorrow, and we hear your reports today across the Super Radio Network. Thank you. Thank you. Christina in the capital, Marcus Paul in the morning, 6 to 9. If you feel you've got something to say, 